Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome, everyone. This uh, podcast is where I get to have really unusual conversations with amazing people. And uh, we've got a great one teed up for you today. I am joined by two people uh, who I used to serve with in Congress until a few years ago when they moved on to greener pastures. A Republican, Charlie Dent, and a Democrat, Donna Edwards. You can see them both as commentators on uh, MSNBC and CNN. Uh, both of these two friends of mine, though, are really smart, principled people. I invited them here to talk about our shifting political landscape, a little bit about what it was like serving during a time of such transformative change. Uh, and I'll be interested in hearing whether their new perspective as former members of Congress, also as members of the media, uh, have caused them to view things differently, given the many new insights into our combustible national politics. So let me start by welcoming Charlie Dent, who um, for seven terms represented the 15th District of Pennsylvania. Charlie is regarded as a pragmatic, moderate Republican. That, of course, made him a bit of an endangered species in his final few years in Congress. A fun fact that you won't get from him on CNN Charlie is a great athlete, and I think the last time I saw him in person was across the net on the tennis court, where he is just as effective and gracious as he always was in Congress. Welcome to my podcast, Charlie. Thank you, Jared. And we did serve together, and I should note that you have one of the best tennis serves of any member of Congress. Very overpowering. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now let's welcome my fellow Democrat, Donna Edwards. She became Maryland's first African-American congresswoman in 2008 after working as a lawyer and a longtime community activist. She represented the 4th District of Maryland up until 2017. Donna is an unabashed progressive. And here's my fun fact about Donna Edwards that you won't get on MSNBC. I learned this from um, serving with her and we would have long hours where we'd be stuck in the cloakroom and having to order meals Turns out Donna, I think, is the only person I know who absolutely loves liver. Oh. That I will always remember. And you you probably forgot that I knew that, Donna, but welcome to the podcast. I did, but I'm also, thanks so much uh, for having me, Jared. It's great to be here with, with Charlie. Um, but I'm not going to deny that I love liver. Um, so you repeat it, but I validate it. <laughs> well, let's let's dive in with kind of a big picture uh, question for each of you, and it's about bipartisanship. This has been such an ideal for people for so long. It's it's for some a measure of good process, good politics, maybe even good policy uh, when it has that seal of bipartisanship. And for other people, it's become more of an empty label. I think some people on both sides now increasingly see it as uh, weakness and compromise, something that maybe is a threat to their values. So let's start with uh, you, Charlie. What are your thoughts about the value of bipartisanship today? How realistic and how important is it? Look, bipartisanship is, is a means uh, to an end. It's not an end in itself. And the reason why it's important to engage in bipartisan conversations 
is, is because when we pass, when you, and now you, pass legislation, you want to make sure those types of bills and laws that, that are enacted are, are sustainable and durable. And when they're done on a bipartisan basis, they are much more sustainable and durable. And I think that's been a real problem in recent years with both sides of the aisle passing major policy initiatives on a, a partisan basis uh, become political fodder for years, it seems. And, and, and I think that's uh, un, un, really very unfortunate. And that's where we are. And you're, and you're right, too. The incentives right now are really not very much aligned for members. Uh, you know, they don't see that they don't see the reward if you will, to, uh, to engage in, in bipartisan discussions and that ultimately lead to compromises, which will be, which will be characterized by the opponents as, as, as capitulation or surrender, sellouts. And, and uh, until, the, until there are incentives and, and rewards for those you know, to, to seek consensus and, and, and compromise, I'm afraid we're gonna see too many members on both sides you know, you know, retreat to their camps where the political safety is. It's safer to be in that that space, in that harder edge space, for many of, for too many members. So I think that's just my my quick observation on the topic. I want to ask Donna about that, but before I let you go, Charlie, you were one of those Republicans that um, certainly was reaching across the aisle wherever you could. You raise an interesting point about um, when things are bipartisan, they are more politically durable. Um, why did it become so hard for you to uh, work in a bipartisan manner with, you know, from your perspective within the Republican conference in the final years? Yeah, yeah. At times, I found it easier to work with a lot of the Democrats than with the Republicans, uh, because when the Tea Party wave came in, you know, many really didn't have uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them did not have an affirmative sense of governance. In other words, they didn't realize that we actually had the to pass some things and get some bills done. Like, and we would go through these never ending debates and dramas and Donna remembers them well, she was there for it all. When we, you know, these, uh, these continuing resolutions to fund the government for a few months always turned into these, uh, you know, these high wire act, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> very uh, tense discussions, uh, you know, not defaulting on the nation's obligations, you know, the debt ceiling, or passing a reauthorization, the Violence Against Women's Act. Uh, I mean, I could go down a number, omnibus bills, budget agreements, things that, you know, we really needed to do as a Congress became difficult because too many members were really good on the Republican side at that time, uh, really good at telling you all the things they could never do, that the perfect was always the enemy of the good. Uh, and, you know, they were somehow, anytime we reached an agreement, this would be a violation of whatever their principles were at the time. And, uh, and that was what was really frustrating to me. And I would talk to the leadership about that at length, you know, both John Boehner and Paul Ryan, uh, when they were speaker. Uh, and I would tell them, you know, we know how this plane is going to land. Why don't we just simply bite the bullet and do it and put it out there instead of going through all these, these machinations just to try to accommodate people who are voting against the bills <laughs> anyway. I mean, why are we you know, taking input from people who are largely irrelevant. It used to get me very frustrated. I go on all day about this, but that was my anger and frustration. So I, right. I better stop before I even well, lie I, down. I know, you think, I know you're thinking about Mick Mulvaney as you describe what you just described. So we're going to come back to a, a story about him in a moment. But uh, Donna Edwards, I want to hear from you about bipartisanship or partisanship as, as we've teed it up. Well, first of all, thanks, Charlie, for giving me a lot to chew on. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, I started working on Capitol Hill 
Um, back in the early 90s, I was a, a lawyer and advocate for nonprofit organizations from consumer advocacy to, um, to um, anti-domestic violence. And I remember then working on the Hill and the definition of bipartisanship was finding Republicans who are like-minded on an issue with the goal of moving forward that issue, not with a goal of just being together on something and passing a post office authorization. And when I came into the Congress in 2008, um, I came in a special election. Uh, the Congress uh, was already being led by uh, Nancy Pelosi as speaker and Democrats had the majority. And, you know, so the things that we were doing, even in those early days, were mostly just get all the Democrats on board. And if some Republicans came along, you know, good, but who cared? And there was a significant enough majority where that could rule. And then the Tea Party came to, um, came to rise. And I think as Charlie has said, it spelled a different notion of just what it meant to be legislators. Were we gonna legislate, legislate or uh, just argue about stuff and fight about things and talk about stuff that was never gonna come to pass? And, um, and that was markedly different from even my experience as an advocate. And I think now it's just exponential. And, you know, I, I think we have to rethink how we describe what it means to be bipartisan, because too often, both in the press, especially um, in the media and, um, and even within the Congress, I hear people talking about bipartisanship as though that is, that's the end product. Right. And uh, not the you know, the stuff that's happening. I mean, I want to be bipartisan on things that I have a shared shared values and interest. I have no interest in working on something with Republicans to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we have to be clear about what that means because the public's expectation then becomes something quite different. It's almost like, come on, why can't there be a kumbaya as opposed to talking about what it is that we that members should be doing or not. I keep saying we because I can't help that, but. Yeah, I think the, the Iraq <laughs> war was bipartisan as I recall, so. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's go, uh, let, let's go a little deeper into this. Um, we know that there are all these divides and all of this partisanship. Some of it just feels like the growing tribalism in our country. Uh, but Charlie, some of it feels like we're still fighting the Civil War. And uh, there was one particular episode that you and I uh, were part of a few years ago where I introduced an amendment uh, to ban uh, gratuitous displays of the Confederate battle flag in our national parks and our uh, veterans cemeteries and things like that. Uh, and it led to a, a really interesting um, moment that, that I'm hoping you can recall for us involving yeah. our friend Nick Mulvaney. Yeah, that's right. It was, I was chairman of the, uh, at the time, the, uh, uh, the, the Appropriations Subcommittee on Military Construction and the VA. And of course, we have many veteran cemeteries around the country and we were doing the bill. Uh, it was late at night. I think it was around 1.15 a.m. as I recall. And uh, Congressman Huffman comes to the House floor with an amendment 
that, that basically said that no funds shall be expended to display the Confederate battle flag at a VA cemetery. So I'm preparing to accept the amendment saying, yes, I, I support this. And, and, uh, and then we'll ask for a recorded vote. And then, uh, and then just before I was able to say anything, Mick Mulvaney came rushing down to the house floor. It is one in the morning and he runs over to the microphone. So I, to me, and I put my hand over the microphone and say, what's up? And he says, well, I have an amendment to Jared Huffman's amendment. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, what, what is that? And he said, uh, well, my amendment would essentially, uh, you know, only make his amendment applicable to the state of Wyoming. And, you know, so I said, so in other words, you can only display the Confederate battle flag uh, at, in a VA cemetery in Wyoming. So that's right. I said, well, you know, last I checked, uh, Wyoming was part of the, the union. It was a, not, not a Southern state. I don't, I'm not even sure if we have a veteran cemetery there. So you're basically gutting his amendment. And he says, yeah, that's right. I said, would, he said, would you support it? And I said, well, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> and I, and I told him why um, that this is about, Veter this bill is about veterans. It's about military family, service family members, and it really isn't a very good idea. I would have a hard time with this, so I just assume you not do this, Mick. And you know, and so, and 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 I said and he, he was very frustrated. And I finally said, look, you know, it's just this is the way it is. You know, this bill is going to pass with or without your vote. And uh, I'd like to have you to vote for the bill, but you know, I, I understand if you can't vote for it. So then he, you know, he runs back to the leadership staff and says, oh, Dent's being a nasty guy. He's, you know, he told me he doesn't need my vote and all this. They came back down, they talked to me and they, I said, I told him they'll pass with or without his vote. I hope he votes for it. Then he came down one more time. Again, now it's getting close to 1.30 a.m. And, uh, <laughs> and I finally said to him, you know, he said, I can't believe you. He said, I can't believe you won't help me with this. I said, Mick, let me put it another way. You know, my district is about 50 miles from Gettysburg, the end of my district. And, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. And we won that damn war. And the answer is no. Okay. And the answer is no. And so, and then they decided to shut the whole operation down for the night. And we exactly. had to start over again the next day. Yes, but, no, and your amendment passed, your amendment passed. And it was a, without incident. <laughs> it was the, it was the apex of my power in Congress. I shut down the entire appropriations process with that single amendment. And yeah. Louis Gover came. Louis Gohmert came down to try to restore order in the middle of all that, too, which made it even more, more, more interesting. <laughs> so it definitely was an eye opener for me that some of the same fault lines from the Civil War are alive and well in American politics today. Donna, you were there and you have had to navigate a lot of this. Um, I recall that I got overwhelming support from the Black Caucus, uh, and I won't name names, but there was one exception to that. Uh, one of our African-American colleagues in a Southern state who had kind of made peace with some of these Klansmen and uh, Confederate flag wavers and just didn't want to rock the boat. Um, what are your thoughts about how the, the Civil War fault lines continue to permeate our politics? Well, I mean, I think it's even more clear now than uh, when I was there. I mean, I do think that we don't talk enough about those divides within the Congress, forget within the country, um, but within the Congress. And I think as a result, um, you see, you know, these sort of latent ways of dealing with, uh, with issues. And I think for some members, and I can't obviously not speak for all of the Black Caucus, but I do think that sometimes for members, it's a lot to like carry this stuff around all the time and to have that define your tenure in the Congress. On the other hand, um, I think increasingly, especially now, 
um, it's so important for members of Congress to, you know, just talk openly about, you know, how it is that those fights from the 1860s, uh, really, we can't be having them in the United States Congress. And I and I and I fear that um, by not continuing to expose the, you know, the kind of untruths and the reliance on this, you know, very misguided um, history really further injects it into the broader population. And I, I will have to say as an aside, when I got out of Congress, um, I decided to get in an RV and I drove around the country and camped and fished and hiked around the country for about four months. This is before. In fact, I think I saw some of those nomads when I was out on BLM, BLM um, grounds. But um, but I one of the things that I discovered was how deeply, deeply ingrained and divided we are over the 1860s. Uh, and that was really, you know, present for me. And it wasn't and, and, and people who wouldn't, wouldn't even articulate that they had internalized all of this, you know, a couple hundred years. Uh, and so that's frightening to me. It, it's frightening that, you know, it has a presence in the, in the country and it's more frightening that it has a presence in the Congress. There's so much I want to ask both of you about, but I, I've got to uh, I got to focus a little bit on the media because each of you now are regular fixtures on your respective cable news stations, and uh, our country is is so divided, and and it seems to me that part of that divide has to do with the dramatic changes we've seen in the way people get basic information, the advent of social media and you know, the internet and cable news and the, the business model, the competition there. Um, talk about, let's start with you, Donna. Talk about your observations on how our politics as members of Congress and our rhetoric changed as this information transformation began to happen. And there were so many demands for hot takes and uh, everyone wanted to have that, um, that greatest breakthrough soundbite. Well, let me just say, first of all, experiencing it as a member of Congress, um, that the advent of C-SPAN really, you know, was the beginning, I think, of this constant need of members to elevate themselves and play to the country by playing to the camera. I mean, there's not, I remember when I came in that, there were senior members who made a, a point to take me aside and point out where the cameras were in the um, in the chamber. Um, so there's this constant need to say something that's going to make it to, you know, the 11 o'clock hour with the late night shows or to uh, to cable news. And so that's kind of one thing. And then the other is the 24 hour cycle of cable news. You gotta have something to cover. And even in our, our best times with few exceptions, there's not a lot of new news that happens every hour on the hour in the country and in, in the world. I mean, 
you know, there are newsworthy things, but that means that you have to fill the space. And I've, you know, I mean, anyone who watches it all day long knows that, um, you know, you might have a different audience at seven o'clock in the morning than you have at seven o'clock in the evening. And so there's the repetition from one hour to the next hour uh, to the next hour. And I guess the challenge for Americans is trying to figure out which hour you're going to watch and just stick to it. Um, and then you add on that social media, which means that everybody kind of has their own, um, you know, their own space, their own community. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, on, on Twitter, you can choose who your followers are and you can choose who you reach out to on Facebook, you can create your own community so they're only ever hearing um, from one to the other. I, I do a regular column I write for the Washington Post and, you know, and I know the audience that I'm trying to, you know, trigger and reach out to when I write my column. And so um, that's how I, I, I focus it. And, you know, so there are just so many different avenues. And you know, on the one hand, it's created kind of a democratic participation that we've never experienced before. But on the other, it's actually been very damaging to having that, what I grew up with was this Walter Cronkite, you know, view of the world where we all got the same news from the same, you know, person. And we had a shared vision of the, of the country. And you know, so again, another, you know, it's another, it's another worry, but I think we also have to teach our children how to be discerning about where they get their information and how they evaluate it and who the thought leaders are. And I've gone on long, Charlie, um, you can add to that, but, you know, it's a challenge to be a commentator because on the one hand, it's kind of what we, you know, what we do. And I never know. I mean, I don't necessarily know what it is that we're going to talk about or what I'm you know, going to be asked about in so much advance that I can say, well, no, I don't want to um, do that. But you want to also have people remember that you were there and, you know, what it right. is that you said and what you contributed. And so in some ways, I mean, Charlie, we're kind of contributing to the, yeah. you know, the ethos. It's kind of frightening. Charlie, I want to hear your thoughts. I mean, you you certainly know we've always had gadflies and colorful people in Congress, but um, we now have a new crop of people that seem to think they're in Congress in order to perform on social media and cable TV. Uh, how have you observed you know this change? How did it affect your work? Well, I'll tell you what, my first, uh, I, I was elected in 2004, but I would say the first eight or nine years of my time in Congress. And I was doing my job, kept my head down, doing my thing. I wasn't out there trying to get on national syndicates. Yes, I spoke to the media, but, you know, sporadically, at least the national media, but my local media. But so 2013 comes along and this is when I finally snapped. I I had a, a, a reckoning uh, uh, personally when, when, when there was an intention to shut down the government over defunding Obamacare. And, and I had talked with many of the Republican leaders in the House and Senate about why this was an absolutely futile gesture, it, even, if, even, if, uh, it, it, even if enacted into law, which it wouldn't have been, uh, it, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> you know, and, um, and this is just idiotic. And why are we indulging the junior senator from Texas, who was a freshman at the time, yep. uh, on this? 
this uh, suicide mission. This made no sense. And, and they, they said, well, we wish you'd speak up more. I said, okay, well, I will. And, and, uh, and then now they regret that, of course. But I, uh, so, they, uh, so I, I did. And I said, and I, and, I, and I found out I was the only Republican saying this, why this was so, such an absurd thing to do. And you know, I became sort of like momentarily famous for stating the obvious. And, and which in Washington is often a revelation or a gaffe, depending on the, the circumstances. Uh, but the uh, but that's what I learned. And so and um, and and I and one other thing I said too at the time, and I'm, I was so tired on the Republican side of having to listen to certain voices constantly. At the time, I'll pick on Michelle Bachman. I mean, she was out there all the time, going on Fox News and. And other, I'll say, the more eccentric members of the conference were also getting a lot of media attention and essentially branding the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, and I said, my goodness, they, you know, we're, if we're all silent, if we're just kind of sitting in a room, you know, complaining to each other about this group that's out there, you know, this isn't doing any good. You know, we have to actually go out and be public. And, and you know, these guys would always be going on Fox. And I said, what's so horrible about going on CNN or MSNBC? Um, you know, what, just showing up and sounding reasonable, just that's all you need to do. Hey, they're not all insane. And I can't tell you. That, so that's how I got involved. Now, having said that, um, politics has been monetized by people on the right and the left. You know, these people, they're all going for market share, clicks, ratings, eyeballs. That's what they're after. That's the game, uh, particularly, uh, you know, like I always say about the, the talk radio guys, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the Hannity's, you know, their their math was they needed whatever percentage of market share, it's not a big percentage, to make a gazillion dollars. And of course, our math in Congress was usually 50% plus one to pass a bill. And they were never going to say, boy, didn't Denton and, uh, and Edwards and, and Huffman do a great job on that bill, you know, uh, to, you know, to advance the ball down the field? No, they got to go out and say, no, Dent sold out. You know, I mean, this is, that's where the <laughs> anger is. That's, you know, they're not going to endorse this kind of bipartisan stuff. There's no money in it. There's no, that, that anger doesn't drive the ratings or the clicks for them. And so that's what's happened. You know, so these guys are making a gazillion dollars getting whatever it is, five or 10% of market share, but we need 50% plus one. And I would always tell members, you need to tune that out. You need to tune that out and do your job and do what you need to do. And don't worry about what they're going to say. They're going to yell no matter what you do. And, but a lot of members are afraid. They're just simply operating out of fear that there's somebody's going to gin up a primary against them and, you know, and their life will be miserable. But usually I found it was usually the same 200 people calling and screaming at me all the time on whatever the issue was. It was the same ones. <laughs> so, well, I mean, you know, to that point, Charlie, I mean, I used to go on Fox all the time, uh, you know, before I had this defined gig with um, MSNBC and NBC, but I would go on Fox all the time when I was a member because I thought it was important. I don't think that you just kind of leave like one voice out there and not have a counterbalance. And so I did Fox all the time. And, and it was great because it actually helped me shore up my rationale for why I took one position or, or the other. And I think, you know, the same, I experienced the same thing where I would have uh, progressives um, outside and inside of the Congress question why I would go on to, on to Fox News. And, um, and I think that we have to change that dynamic because part of the process should be having real debates and real engagement. But if the people who are like, you know, smart and talented and not, you know, wackos sit out the game, then it leaves it open for those other folks and those other voices. 
Yeah. By the way, Donna, when you went on Fox, I would have to think that a lot of people who were watching probably didn't agree with what you said, but they respected you for right. saying it and said, oh, hey, but she's she's smart and she's articulate and she she makes a great you know, argument. Uh, and even if I disagree with her, so I think you, you walk out ahead of the game. Yeah. Let, let me ask uh, a question about something that all the networks are talking about. It's the future of the Republican Party, because right now, there's this very interesting tug of war between folks like Charlie Dent and uh, Adam Kinzinger and others who are trying to restore some civility and governing mode uh, to a party that has become, you know, a pretty colorful cult uh, uh, of Donald Trump. And, and the CPAC um, episode, you know, really uh, presented that in in uh, sharp focus. Where is this party heading, Charlie? Let me let me ask you. And uh, I, I'm interested in Donna's thoughts too. I, I happen to believe we we actually need a healthy Republican Party in this country for things to work. Uh, and I'm a little worried about um, the next few years. Well, yeah, I think it's it, it, I think it's on a uh, it's a train wreck right now. I mean, there's no there's no way to sugarcoat how how bad things are. But just before coming on this podcast, I was just on a call with a. Uh, Dan Newhouse and uh, Liz Cheney, both of whom had voted uh, voted to uh, impeach uh, uh, former President Trump, uh, and and I'm, I'm close with Adam Kinzinger and others, uh, Fred Upton and some of the others who voted for impeachment. But I, I just wanted to say this about it: the um, you know the party, and I was saying this for a few years, even as soon as Trump came on the scene, there was a time where we had these what I used to call the self-designated chiefs of the Republican Purity Police. These were the these were the uh, these were the rhino hunters. These are the people out there who were you know always quick to judge and and uh, basically they wanted to always find the heretics and incite that you are you know you are ideologically impure. You are not doctrinaire enough because you weren't perfect on you weren't right on as far as they were concerned on issues like you know ab ab abortion or guns or trade or taxes, whatever the issue was. And I was always called a rhino or a squish. You know, or a bedwetter or some other disparaging term, you know, just because I wasn't doctrinaire. Okay. So then, okay, that's where they were. Then here comes Donald Trump. Now we can say a lot of things about him, but we can all agree that he is not doctrinaire or ideologically pure, right? Other than trade and immigration, where he's been, he's been consistent on those two issues where he's been a, he's been a protectionist and a restrictionist on, on, on trade and immigration. So other than that, you know, he's all over the place. He's transactional. And so he comes along and then all of a sudden the litmus test, uh, the litmus test shifted uh, from, you know, these ideals and values and principles to loyalty to a man, a very flawed man, obviously. That's what happened and which is really frightening. And so and that's where we are today. We're still at that point right now where people are pledging allegiance uh, to a man. And it's, it makes less sense now because he's been twice impeached. He lost the popular vote twice. He cost Republicans nothing but defeat. You know, from from after from 2017, 18 and 19, actually 2020, he was the only one who was really defeated. The rest of Republicans did pretty well. Um, but other than that, I mean, he saw nothing but defeat. And I when does the fever break, Charlie? What's, when does it break? You know, I think it breaks, um, you know, in the midterms. We'll see. These midterms are going to be important. You know, if Republicans underperform in the midterms, uh, then I think people are saying, you know, why are we embracing, you know, the past? Why are we going, you know, why aren't we looking for new leadership, for a new vision, for a better future? Why kind of, why embrace this Trumpism of, of nativism, isolationism, protectionism, nihilism, you know, uh, you know, unilateralism? I mean, why is this such a good thing? I, it's, it's not. And I think we need to talk about not just Trump, but all those isms 
I just mentioned that are, are, are really, I think, very, very probably this ugly populism too is another one. I mean, why, why are racism. we going in that direction? Yeah, I mean, so I, I use the term nativism because, you know, it's, some use yeah. racism, but I, I, I've been using yeah. the term nativism because, I mean, that's what he's tapping into that vein. And, um, and it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. Donna, you and I are progressives. Uh, maybe you uh, share my view that I actually find myself worrying about the Republican Party because I think what's going on is unhealthy for the country. What, what do you think? I do. I mean, and we started out this, you know, conversation really talking about um, bipartisanship, but it's actually hard to be bipartisan in an environment where the dominance is that nativism that Charlie described. Um, and so, I, you know, in some ways, even as a progressive, I find myself like longing uh, for the real conservatives because there, I think you can have an ideological and a de debate over issues and ideas and values and things. And, um, and I don't think you can have that in this environment. I mean, I do uh, stretch back to the days. I think my first vote when I was eligible to vote at 18 was Mac Mathias for Senate. Yeah. He, if he were alive, he would never, he wouldn't be able to be elected as a Republican. Um, and Connie Morella, I worked with her on the Violence Against Women Act. Um, Joanne Emerson, Orrin Hatch was our first sponsor when I was working to um, get the Violence Against Women Act passed. And so I long for that kind of Republican Party because I think it's healthy for our democracy, but also as a progressive. I believe in the stuff that I believe in. And I wanna have that challenged in the best way and then have those ideas uh, win. And I don't think you can do it if you have an opposition. Well, you don't have an opposition because you've got this other thing out there. Uh, I don't know how the Republican party is going to reinvent itself. It's hard to see how it comes out of this thing that is happening now because it's so dominant and I don't see it letting go in the next election cycle or even the cycle after that. And, you know, I'm interested and curious about um, people who've either left the Republican party or they're still in, but um, they want to, you know, recreate. Does that mean that there is a new Republican party that's, um, that's created or somehow you just got to wait it out until you can, you know, cycle out all of these folks. I don't know what the end product is, but I don't think it's healthy for us not to have and to have formed a real opposition. Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation. I, I want to bring us to a final question and thank you all for uh, just a, a really delightful dialogue. You're now former members of Congress. And I'm interested to know how that perspective as a former member uh, may have changed your outlook on our politics. I certainly uh, know plenty of former, you know, recently retired members of Congress on the Republican side who all of a sudden John Boehner and others have, have become quite liberated in, in their ability <laughs> to, you know, criticize Donald Trump and others and, and didn't seem to do, Paul Ryan, uh, di didn't seem to do it as much when they were in office. So there's obviously... Uh, something that changes a little bit on that side. Uh, Donna, let's start with you. 
uh, as a Democrat, did your perspective change at all when you became a former member of Congress? Well, let me just say I felt liberated too. Um, and part of the reason is even as a progressive, the ability to kind of look at myself and other, uh, and you know, the progressive caucus, if you will, progressive members of Congress and not to be so um, rigid in terms of how I think about how we achieve you know, a good end. And I think I was maybe a little more rigid when I was in the, uh, in the Congress. I also was not able to be you know, really critical of the party when criticism was, you know, was deserved. Um, I served in the leadership as well on our, as the co-chair of our steering and policy committee. Um, I was in the leadership of the DCCC. And so those things by themselves constrain what it is that you can say about the body. Um, and I, I don't have those constraints anymore. And so sometimes, for example, I've used my column to write uh, in a way that criticizes, you know, sometimes criticizes progressives, sometimes criticizes the uh, Democratic Party and the leadership. And I would never have been able to do those things as a member. So as a former, yeah. as a former member, what would you tell yourself back when you were a member if you could render that backward advice? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've been looking at this debate around both on, on the minimum wage and now that's going to ensue around the um, $1,400 payments to um, to people as it faces, as those things face opposition in the Senate. And I think on one hand, I would tell my former self, choose your battles wisely you know, find the thing that you're gonna fight for and then fight for it. For me, minimum wage might've been that thing where I would have to, you know, be highly critical of, you know, Senate Democrats for, um, you know, sort of not moving forward on those, those issues. So I tell myself to, you know, pick my, pick my battles. I wasn't always great at that when I was in the, um, in the Congress. And I felt sometimes like progressives just had to fall on their sword on everything. And like, come on, that sword can only do so much. Yeah, can't die on every hill. Charlie, you were already becoming pretty liberated in your final uh, years and months as a member of Congress. But um, I'm interested to know how your perspective as a former member has changed. And same question, how would you advise yourself if you could go back in time? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I was pretty unplugged before I left. Yeah, I was, uh, I was already there, and I felt pretty good. By the way, I always felt liberated because I learned early on that going a little bit unplugged or going a little bit rogue, it did not hurt me politically in my district. It actually helped me. So I found that out. I thought you know during 2013 government shutdown that I was committing, I might have been committing political suicide only to find out that my poll numbers went up after the fact, you know, we <laughs> the poll. my numbers are way up. And then, uh, and then I had no opponent on either side in 2014. I mean, unheard of. So, I mean, so I, I who knows? I mean, so, but I guess one thing, and Donna kind of alluded to it, look, she kind of had a, a, a kind of a quasi leadership role within the democratic uh, house. And, and I think, and I, I never, I never sought a leadership role in the house. I say leadership, part of the elected leadership or the, the, the NRCC, because that, you no longer have the luxury of independence, uh, at least to the extent that you'd like, once 
you assume one of those positions. So I was kind of ahead of a faction, this Tuesday group, more of a center-right, more pragmatic members, some more moderate, some more conservative, but they were all kind of governance-oriented. Uh, and so it was more fun. That got me into all the meetings. And that got me into the into the places where I could I could be advocating. So I'd have to be in there battling with Jim Jordan and Mick Mulvaney and Mark Meadows. And we'd have these in front of Paul Ryan, where we would have these back and forth all the time. I would say, why what they're proposing is so stupid. And then they'd say, I'm a, you know, I'm why I'm, I'm a squish. You know, so uh, but this is what you deal with. And and so I guess looking back, I would just tell these members now that um just don't be so damn afraid of your bases. I mean, just do what you think is right. You know, there's, there is life after, after elected office. And I always kind of said, like I was in, I had 14 years, seven terms. And I like, I said, after my, after my fourth or fifth term, I said, anything else is this gravy. Just do what I got to do. I was on an appropriations committee. I was down and I served together on the ethics committee where we got to know each other well and work together well. And so the ethics committee killed my career, by the way. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. I mean, think of that. I mean, it's a, I, I mean, and actually it functioned pretty well. I thought it, did. You know, it functioned well, you know, we, we worked together. We didn't, there was no grandstanding as everything's behind closed doors. And it was sometimes hard to tell the Republicans from the Democrats because we were kind of looking at the facts and the circumstances and just trying to, you know, do the right thing. And, and I think that's what we just got to have to tell the members, stop being so afraid do what's right. And I've always said that the Trump problem in the Republican Party will go away when elected Republicans stand up and say, I've had enough. This is what we need to do. If they all stand together or enough of them stand together, that will do not more to change the narrative than anything else they could do. So it just comes back to leadership. Don't be afraid to lead. Well, uh, that's a good place for us to stop. I, I now understand why CNN and MSNBC pay each of you the big bucks. You're just outstanding. I've known that for a long time. Uh, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah. Thank see you. you. Passport. <laughs> see you. <laughs>Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>